Well, good morning. My name is Pastor John, senior pastor here at East Shore, and I'm glad that you're, you've joined us today in worship. And I'd like to extend a happy Mother's Day to the moms out there, and especially thank the moms who loved us so well and have taught us so much, including the value of, of working hard and working hard at showing love and grace. I'm reminded of how good mothers strive to equip their children with the knowledge that they need to succeed and thrive in life and to face the challenges ahead. And in kind of the same way as mothers prepare their children, we're studying through the book of Hebrews, and the author of this book is doing something similar. He's trying to equip, prepare these Hebrew Christians for what they will need facing the trials ahead, what they will need to succeed in the race of life. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17, and these six verses are very dense, but they are such an encouragement to us. They refocus on this image we've seen before, if you've been here when we go through Hebrews, the idea that our life is a race, and we're in a race with a goal to pursue. And the point our author is trying to make today is that we're not just called to participate in this race of life. We're not just called to become a Christian and then get that card and then we're good. But no, God has a goal for us to pursue in life. It's not just believe and then you're in. Our goal is much more than a participation trophy. Our goal is following Jesus and striving for peace and holiness. Jesus is better than any lesser or easier goal we could set for ourselves. He's better than just participating. He has a goal for us to pursue and he can teach us how we should run this race of life. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to be in verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can use that blue one in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. You can also look on the screen. We'll put the words there. I'd ask that once you are there in Hebrews chapter 12, you would please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for the, today. Hebrews 12, verse 12 through 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 12, our author begins. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Lord, the race, the course of our lives in front of us are often hard and often difficult. I pray, Lord, that your word this morning would encourage us to keep running, to keep going, to keep pursuing you. God, work in our hearts that we understand and grasp the goal that we're to run after in life, what we should make the purpose of our life. If we know you have a relationship with you, how it changes our purpose, may it 
encourage us to seek peace in our relationships and to also seek to grow in holiness to reflect you more and more. May the things that hinder us from pursuing that, the obstacles that get in the way, may you show us how by your spirit, by your power, we can overcome those obstacles to continue to grow in peace and holiness. Thank you that that's not something we have to achieve in and of ourselves, but it's a gracious gift that you provide as your spirit works in our hearts and that you provide because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we read and study and think today, our minds would not be far from him, but would rather be turned toward our Lord and Savior so that he may increase and receive all honor and glory. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and if you recall looking at it, or you were here last week, we were in the early part of chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, and we were talking about God's discipline, the discipline or correction that he brings into our lives, but he does it for our good so that we could grow to be more like him. And we ended the message talking about how if God brings this discipline, we need to keep going. We actually looked at the first couple of verses of our text today. And the first point our author drives to us is in this race of life, we need to keep running the race. Keep running the race. Verses 12 and 13 speak of it. It tells us to lift, strengthen, grip your drooping, hanging hands and feeble arms and your weak, feeble needs. Keep running the race. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Our author is giving a very honest acknowledgement that life can be exhausting. It can be difficult. We can struggle to faithfully follow God. Or we may live in some fear of what's going to happen. What's going to happen next in my life? What is still to come? And so our author uses here in this verse some Old Testament language to encourage endurance in keeping to run this race. He's actually quoting from the book of Isaiah, a prophet from the Old Testament. Look at the same language here. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Why should we be strengthened? Well, God says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We can be strengthened and encouraged because God is in control. Even when it feels exhausting to follow our Lord, He is there with us. And so our passage says that we should, in light of that, make straight, mark out level paths for our feet, paths that are free of obstacles. And we'll talk a bit later today about what some of those obstacles are, but the challenge here is to make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's a challenge to us to make every effort to avoid stumbling, things that could get in our way of pursuing God. I think namely has in mind sin or rebellion against God, chasing our own interest instead of the Lord's. We work to make that straight path so that even when we fail, we do not permanently fall. We do not remain lame or impaired, out of joint, dislocated, disabled, but instead we're in a position to be healed by God's grace, become strong by his spirit, return to the race. Again, he's probably appealing to the Old Testament. We looked at this passage last week in the book of Proverbs. The author encourages them to let their eyes look directly forward, their gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet 
then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Keep running. Keep going because the Lord is with us. Now, all that was a little bit of a review from last week because that, these verses 12 and 13 are a transition. It's the application of God's discipline. We need to keep going. But then it also sets us up to think about what exactly are we doing? If we're to keep running this race, what does that look like? How am I supposed to do this? What is the goal that's actually in front of me? Well, the good news is we don't have to try to figure that out. Our author tells us what the goal and purpose of the life of God's people should be. Our goal to strive for is peace and holiness before God. We're given a goal to strive for, to strive for, pursue, work at, make every effort. This is the good fight that we are to face. This is what we should follow after. We have a goal to strive for. And what is that goal? Well, verse 14 tells us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the purpose of your life is ultimately God's glory. But as our author reflects it here, it's peace in your relationships and it's holiness before God. Christian faith, the call to follow Christ, is not an invitation to join a social club. It's not an invitation to be a part of this subculture that has its own way of doing things. No, it's a call to a relationship with a living, resurrected Savior. It's a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. And like all relationships, a relationship needs to be nurtured and developed. You can't just let it sit there. You actually have to invest in a relationship where it falls apart. We cannot just make a half-hearted effort about this. If there's somebody you haven't talked to in 10 years, you can't really call them your best friend. We need to take time to talk to people, get to know people. And the same is true with our Lord. The way we get to know Him, the way, the difference He makes in our life is that our life is reflected in peaceful relationships and that we're striving for holiness before God. This action and effort is called for repeatedly in Scripture. For example, in the book of Peter, he quotes the Old Testament and says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, that's holiness, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He uses some different words here, but the idea is there. We're turning away from evil, we're doing good, pursuing holiness before God, and we're seeking peace with others. And that runs against sometimes our human nature. It's not natural to want to be holy and right before God. It's not natural to try to be at peace with others. But by God's grace, we can develop a greater hunger for these things. Let me take a moment to unpack it any, a little more. What is it we're striving for? Let's look at each of those things. The first thing our author says is we're striving for peace. Peace with everyone in every relationship. I just put the verse back up, but that letter A on your outline, if you're using it, is peace. Peace is the goal to strive for. Our Lord is all about peace. Jesus reflects peace. He's been about peace even before he was born as a human being. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, before Christ is even born in Bethlehem, before he appears on earth as we see him and know him, the book of Isaiah, this famous prediction is, for to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to be on the throne of David over his kingdom. He will establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. But that kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. Christ is peace and brings peace. And so God's people are supposed to be about peace as well. That's what our passage is saying. One scholar, Michael Kruger, says throughout the Bible, godly people are presented as pursuers of peace with their fellow men. That's one of the key marks of holiness, is that we're pursuing peace in our relationships. But look in your Bibles at that verse 14. It says we're not responsible to achieve peace. It doesn't say achieve peace with everyone. It says strive for peace. We're to pursue it. We're to make it our goal. We're going to seek as much as possible to extend that grace, that peace to everyone. That means not just the people we like, not just the people we agree with, not just the people we get along with, but everyone. Now, seeking that peace doesn't mean that we compromise with sin. It doesn't mean we go along with those who are turning against God, but it does mean that we seek to extend grace and mercy wherever possible. Where Scripture and God's Word is clear, He gives us clear instructions, then we should be bold and clear. But where God's Word is less clear, we should seek to understand. We should seek to extend grace. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on us, we strive for peace in our relationships. If this is something you want to struggle or dive with or dive deeper into, that chapter Romans 12 is an excellent chapter about peace in our relationships. This type of peace means we don't harbor bitterness in our relationships with others. I would say especially with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If we're part of a church family, we shouldn't let bitterness or division push us apart. Instead, we should seek restoration. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, it's important to, to look at the context here about what we're talking about. We're, we're not necessarily talking about the foreign policy of countries and nations. That's, that's a discussion for another day. In this passage up here and the passage we're reading, he's speaking to a particular church. He's saying, in your church, among the people who you interact with on a daily basis, strive for peace with everyone. You, me, we strive for peace in our relationships. And I think that's a, a strong challenge to us because this author is telling us that God's people, Christians, followers of Christ, should be known as people of peace. And I have to ask, is that always the case with us? Sometimes I don't think it is. I think we have a tendency to be quarrelsome. And some not only see problems and wrongs, some attack them wherever they see something is wrong, even if it's just a matter 
of opinion. Often we can expect the worst and hold grudges. And when we're doing that, we're following our own desires, not those of Christ. God calls us to peace. You might say, that's really hard for me to wrap my head around, Pastor, because you don't know what this person did or that person did. And, and I'm sorry if someone has hurt you in a great way. That, that's not right. God is, the God of justice will take care of that. But if we want to work on peace, it comes from understanding who we are and who God is. One pastor who I've been quoting a bit in this series, I've really enjoyed his work as he preached through this book, is F.B. Meyer. And I like what he says about this. He encourages us to stand up for the true, the holy, and the good at all cost. Hey man, we need to stand up against injustice. But, he says, think very little of standing up for your own rights, because what are your rights? You deserve to be treated much worse than you were ever treated at the worst. Leave God to vindicate you. This is this change of perspective in our minds to move our thoughts away from ourselves. Stand up, defend the rights of others, absolutely. But as for us and our relationships, we seek to extend peace and grace. But at the same time as we're saying all this, our goal is not just peace for the sake of peace. Peace isn't the greatest good in the world because there's something else we're to strive for. If we go back to verse 14, it says we're also to strive for holiness the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our author is telling us that holiness is expected of all Christians. Now, that's not a word we use very often. Well, what does holiness mean? Well, it means to be different. It means to be set apart, distinct, unique, removed from something and like something else, removed from sin, rebellion against God, and like our Lord and Savior. Another pastor, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way, a holy man aims to be like God, complete in his character, motives, and thoughts, renewed after the image of him that created him in righteousness and true holiness. That's our goal, is to be like God, to show his character and motives, to look like God. People see us and say, that's how God would act in that situation. Now, to be clear, we're not going to reach perfection in this life, but we are to pursue it. We're to faithfully live for our Lord and fight against sin in our lives. Why do we do that? Well, Scripture tells us many times that this is to be our goal. In the words of 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us to impurity. No, He has called us in holiness. That's our call in our lives, not to live for ourselves and sin, but to live for God. But I want to point out something extremely important about this, because you may nod and say, yeah, okay, sure. But look what the rest of verse 14 tells us. It says that we are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is a strong phrase right there. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This holiness, a life that's set apart, that looks different from those around us, that is an expectation for God's people. It's what you will find in the lives of people who are on their way to heaven. Their lives will look different from those around them. And this isn't just a Hebrews thing. We find this other places in Scripture. Jesus himself spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. 
Yeah, the word holiness isn't there, but it's the same idea. That purity before God in our behavior, that is what you see in the life of someone who's going to see God face to face. We also see this at the very end of the New Testament, looking ahead to New Jerusalem where God's people live and worship Him. It says that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are with God in eternity are those who live for Him now. Now, you may hear that, and if you spend a lot of time in church, you may say, Pastor John, that sounds an awful lot like you're saying, I have to do good things to earn my way to heaven. And that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. This is not a salvation by works. Our author is conveying a truth to us that if we know Jesus, it changes our lives. Holy living results from genuine salvation. If we know God, he changes us. If you want to think about it, this actually makes sense. Do the math in your head. There's a holy God who's our Father. He's the one who created us for a relationship with Him and has made a way for us to know Him. There's a, a holy Savior, Jesus Christ, who dies to save us. And if we know Him, He gives us His presence. In what? In the Holy Spirit. And so if you add holy, holy, holy together, it means that, yes, God's people should be holy as well. As scholar F.F. Bruce says, those who are called to be partakers in God's holiness must be holy themselves. This is sometimes a difficult truth for us to grasp because we think that faith is just, I need to make a decision in my mind. And yes, a decision needs to be made, but it's a decision that has results in our lives. Holiness is what comes from having faith in Jesus. We sang a song a little bit ago, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Think about it another way. If you see a smoke somewhere, you know there's a fire. Well, if you see holiness in the life of someone, a character that reflects God, then you know that that's a person that God has saved and changed. And so what that should mean for us is that true believers will want to grow in holiness. They'll want to look like God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Let's turn away from sin so that we are bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If we love and respect God, then we want to grow spiritually. And if that thought, growing spiritually, being like God, if that's not something that appeals to you, my friend, it should, because if it doesn't, then you should question your understanding of how you relate to God. We are called to grow, to look like Him. Each of us has a whole lot of room to go, a whole lot of change that is needed in our lives. This isn't me standing up here saying, I figured this out, do it like me. No, each of us has plenty of sin, rebellion in our heart that we need to overcome in our lives. If we spend more time thinking about, we discover more areas. Oh yeah, I guess I'm not really thinking about God in this area, in this area. There's always room to grow. There's always areas to change, to look more like our Savior. But if we pursue that change, we want to look more like God. Well, that transformation can give us confidence as we get closer to the end of our lives. The book of 1 John puts it this way. Now little children abide, remain in Him, in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence 
and not shrink back in shame at his coming. Well, John, where's this confidence come from? Well, if you know that he is righteous, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If we're doing what God has said, living for him, that can give us confidence. Yes, okay, that's showing me that I'm heading towards eternity with my God. So again, what are we running for? What is our life about? Is our life about striving after peace and holiness? Is that the purpose of our life? Is that what consumes our thoughts and attention? Or do we put some lesser goal from the title of the sermon, some participation trophy, something else that we chase after in this life? Now, there's many things that we could think about here. We could chase after ourselves, our own interests. Maybe we set money as the goal of our life or pleasure, getting good things for myself. Maybe we make the goal of our lives getting other people to like us or we value others' reputation. I want to make sure this person says good things about me. Maybe that's the goal. In all of this, though, that's the enemy trying to keep us distracted from our purpose of peace with others and holiness. That's what the world around us wants under the control of the enemy is to keep us from thinking about those things. Sometimes the very situations and circumstances of the world can keep us from pursuing those goals. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you should be. Any type of news thing you look at or, or commentator online, often a lot of Twitter, social media influencers, often they're trying to sell a lie to you. And that lie they're trying to sell to you is that the problems in your life are a result of what's happening outside of you. There's these people, these things out here that are wrong and bad. And if these people got their act together and they stopped doing bad things or they started doing good things for you, then your life would be better. Then it would. So your job, you need to think about those other people. They need to do something to make your life better. But friends, don't, don't fall for that trap that they're setting there. The reason they phrase it that way is so you remove yourself from the equation. Yeah, it's those people's fault that things are messed up in my life or in the world around me. The reason they say that is they want to keep you angry. And by keeping you angry, that keeps you watching what they're saying, scrolling their newsfeed, and, and honestly seeing their ads so that they get paid. Or getting you to vote or act a particular way so they get, get power. Our passage tells us what we're to strive for. 12.14 says, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, don't get lost in culture wars around us. We're called to peace with others, extending grace, growing in personal holiness. As I was thinking about this, actually this morning, so it wasn't something I wrote down, and my mind turned to a song that's not a Christian song at all, so don't hear me saying that, but turned to a song from uh, Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change. And then he goes on to say, uh, you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. As a Christian, I would phrase it as look to Jesus and make the change, but his point is well received in that our calling is peace in our personal relationships and our growth in holiness. So what I'm saying, what are you saying, Pastor John? Well, let me give you an example. Um, I'm going to be a little vague about things. I don't need to be specific, but 
I was reading this week's from some news sources. Let's say they're on the left of political sides, and they were very upset about something that may be happening. And then I was reading some news sources from, let's say it's from the right political side, and they were very upset about something else that may be happening. And both of them were saying, the problem is these other people are doing this, and that's going to mess everything up. Friends, if you're angrier about someone else's sin than you are about your own lack of holiness, then your priorities are out of order. If you're angrier about what somebody else is doing than the fact that I need to grow, I need to change, then something is out of order. We could look at this in many different ways. Maybe you're concerned that the culture's redefining marriage or, or gender, and I'm going to actually speak about marriage in a little bit later in this message, preach about it more in a few weeks, but if that's the greatest concern, you think that's the big problem in the world, oh, friend, look at your heart where sin dwells as well. Maybe you get worked up about curriculum at a local school or about something a Supreme Court decision might happen. If that consumes more of your time than your own battle against sin, then something needs to change. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They, they are. They're things we should talk about, think about in a God-honoring way. But what our text says is that to God, holiness is more important than any other goal that we could set for ourselves. Think about it this way. If you could somehow be 100% sure that you could vote for every candidate Jesus would vote for, you could have God's view on every political issue, but there was still sin hidden in your heart, or still something that you were hiding from others and refusing to work on, which of those two things, voting the right way or your sin, would God care about more at the end? Not saying something's not important. I'm saying God places a value on something. And our hearts are very deceptive about hiding our sin. In our very politicized culture, we need to heed this word from Hebrews. Believers' lives are to be about seeking peace and holiness, not getting angry about someone else's sin. So how do we grow in this holiness? Well, our text doesn't really spend a lot of time on that. Uh, so just for a second, we... Scripture talks about things known as spiritual disciplines, practices we can take to grow, such as spending time in God's Word, time in prayer, time with believers. Those are wonderful places to start. And we'll get to some of those things, what that looks like later in the book of Hebrews. But in our passage, our author looks at that goal, and then he first turns to look at some obstacles that can prevent us from following through in this race of God. It's the next point on your outline. We need to be aware of the obstacles or hindrances that stand in our way in the race of God's grace. Our text gives us three type of hindrances that we could look out for. If we want to follow God, strive after peace and holiness, what is it that could get in our way and stop us from doing that? Well, the first one it talks about is if we try to do it alone, if we run this race alone. And so instead, we need to watch out for see, look out for one another so that no one falls short and fails to obtain God's grace. Look in our text at verse 15, the first part of it. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is calling us to run together, encourage one another. We need to pay attention to one another, to somebody we know who says they're a Christian, maybe even believes they are, but if we see a sign that maybe their life isn't changed by Jesus, 
We should reach out to them so that no one fails to obtain God's grace. This is a theme we've hit repeatedly in Hebrews, but you can come to church every week and still not be with God in eternity. Because from the weakest to the strongest, oldest to youngest, we need help to make it home. This verse is telling us to not leave someone behind, but instead to see how we can reach out and encourage someone, point them toward Christ. So if you see a brother or sister in Christ, someone in the church you know, and you see them doing something that, that you know doesn't honor God, the wrong response would be, oh man, he's making poor choices. I wish he did something better. Oh wow. No, 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 go talk to that person. If you have that type of relationship, which you should in a church family, talk to that person, speak to them, encourage them, challenge them to follow God. Again, this is what the whole book of Hebrews is kind of about. The author is speaking to Hebrew Christians and saying, you need to follow God. Beware of turning away from him. Back in chapter four, he said, therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The author is afraid that these people that he views brothers, sisters in Christ may fall away from the faith. So we should encourage one another. If we want to succeed in this race of life, then we need to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the best ways to do that is to be a part of a church. And so if you're not a part of a church, I would encourage you to join one, be a part, because a church is where we encourage one another to grow in holiness. It's where we encourage one another, pray for one another. You don't have to join this church. You can find another one, but please be a part of a body of believers so you can have those helping you to grow. And I would just say, if you're looking for one, I think East Shore is, is, is a pretty good one to check out. So running alone can be an obstacle to following God, but our author gives us another obstacle. That obstacle he gives us, the way I put it, was bitter sin. This is one of those where I was in the process of working on this sermon. This, this passage was a real challenge this week, and I was going to say something else that was one word, and instead went a completely different direction in this point. So bitter sin is what went with. And what I mean by that is hidden or excused, downplayed sin that can destroy one's faith. Sin that leads us away from God and that can even bring down a church. This bitter sin we see in the second half of verse 15. Our author told us, see to it no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, we see that, that, that phrase, that's poisonous root of bitterness or bitter root that springs up and grows to cause trouble, to defile, corrupt God's people. And by studying it, some authors pointed me to the fact that that phrase is actually a quote from the Old Testament. You see it's even in quotes there. That root of bitterness in context is about a person who abandons God and leads others astray because that will lead to judgment on all of God's people. It's actually a quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 29 verses 18 through 19, Moses speaking to God's people, he says, Beware lest there be among you a man, a woman, a clan, or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods, to, to worship, to make their life about something else. Moses says, beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. There, there's that bitter root. 
one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, when he hears how we're supposed to relate to God, this person blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I turn away from God, but I'll be okay, because this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. This is someone who is leaving the faith. Today, this type of bitterness would be disunity that comes when someone abandons Christ and the church. And this is a message I got to this kind of end point, and there's so much time we could spend on different parts. And I, I really don't have as much energy and time to devote to this particular thing. But I'll, I'll say this. There are a lot of problems in the church. There's lots of itch, issues in churches in our culture. There's lots of problems. I would say even problems show up in, in this church. Absolutely. But when you see those problems, don't let it turn your heart against God. Yes, there are problems, and um, truth should be found out. We shouldn't hide truth or push it aside. Truth should be revealed, justice administered where necessary. But don't let those problems turn you away from God. Because your faith is never just yours alone. If you've heeded the author's previous point, if you're running together with people, if you're part of a church, then your faith, yes, it's personal, but it just doesn't impact you. Your faith also impacts your whole church family. It's easy to become bitter about the church. Well, there's this issue here, this issue here. I don't want anything to do with institutional religion. Yeah, it's easy to become bitter like that, but don't become bitter about Jesus. It's easy to, to leave a church saying, well, for, forget them. I'm going to go my own way. But it's deadly serious to reject God. And the church is where his people meet. One scholar, George Guthrie, looking at all this, he was speaking to somebody who's thinking about this. He says, please stop. Consider the curse of being one who introduces a bitter root to the church of the living God. Because in doing so, you not only affect yourself, you also contaminate others in such a way that will mark your life and theirs forever. So how how's this overcome? If we see in us where you have questions about things that we're seeing in a church or, or a church setting, let me encourage you, talk about it. Ask questions about it. Don't let the bitterness, anger against God in a church simmer in, in your heart until you disappear out the back door. No, ask questions about it. Among God's people, no questions should be off limits. Ask, talk to others, learn from others. Don't leave God's people because of a bitter heart. So we need to run together, avoid this bitter sin that can infect us. But the author also points to a final obstacle. And this final obstacle, he says, is unholiness, but he particularly highlights sexual immorality. Another obstacle that can keep us from holiness and peace with others is sexual immorality. To illustrate this, our author uses an Old Testament character named Esau as a prime example of a lack of godliness because he profaned and disregarded God's blessing. Look at our text in verse 16. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is referring to an Old Testament story where Esau, who was a firstborn son, he gave up that right of inheritance and the responsibilities that came with it and he gave it up for immediate satisfaction so he could have some food because he was hungry. We read about this in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. 
Esau's younger brother, Jacob, asked him to give him his birthright for some food. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. And so then Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now this was thousands of years ago, but at that time being the firstborn was very important. You had certain obligations, responsibilities. And yes, there were certain blessings of inheritance that came with that, but you had some obligations to fill out. He was to receive the honor of carrying on his family's legacy, but he rejected that calling. He said, no, I prefer to seek my own interest. I want to do the things that please me rather than what God's plan was for his family. So it's not that Esau was necessarily known for being sexually immoral, although he did have multiple wives that made life difficult for his family. But what's so interesting about what the author is doing here is the way he uses Esau as an illustration. Because you first read it, you think he sold his birthright for soup. What in the world does that have to do with sex? That's not talking about that at all. Oh, but the author's making a connection in our mind. Because like Esau, giving up God's best for immediate pleasure, that's what sexual immorality is. Sexual sin is giving up what God has created so we can get what we want right now. And that's why sexual sin can be such a huge obstacle in running the race of holiness. When believers are called to be like God, to be sexually responsible, Paul warns in the book of Ephesians, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, but sexually immoral, impure, covetous, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, we're talking about obstacles that keep us from following God, and sexual sin particularly can captivate desires in a way that is incredibly dangerous. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm quite sure that you know nothing of true holiness if you can look forward to any future indulgence of a sensual appetite with a certain degree of delightful anticipation. And what he means is if you're looking forward to when you can next sin, then you need to ask questions about how you relate to God. And this is the danger, I think, particularly of sexual sin, because it can so easily fill the mind, consume our thoughts that we think about it and long for it in a way we're supposed to be longing for holiness before God. Our last verse, verse 17, shows the danger of this, the danger of what happens if we live for immediate pleasure. He says, for you know that afterward, when he, Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent or change there, though he sought that blessing with tears. Later, Esau wanted the blessing, the benefits of the firstborn, but by that time, it was too late. And even though he begged, that time had passed. This is from Genesis 27. Esau's younger brother Jacob goes to his father, steals the blessing that Esau's supposed to have. So Esau comes to his father, and when he hears about this, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And then he keeps going. He says, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He sought that blessing with tears, but it was too late to change what he had done. 
He lived for himself and reaped the consequences of that. He never really valued the gift that God wanted to give him. He regretted its loss, but he was unwilling to change his desires. He still, even now, is focused on himself. I want a blessing, God, for me. Scholar Michael Kruger says, pursuing short-term pleasure can have long-term consequences that cannot be undone. That's what Esau experienced. Now, that's a real downer kind of place to leave the sermon there. So (laughs) instead, uh, and this isn't in your notes, we're going to talk about how in the world can we overcome that obstacle? If that obstacle, whether it's sexual immorality or some other type of unholiness in your life, what are some ways that we can think about how we should live? Well, here's three that that came to my mind as I was thinking on this point. The first is we should develop God's perspective on marriage and sex. God's perspective. God's perspective was for sex to be a good thing, a union between man and woman, husband and wife. It's supposed to be connection with and care for one another. And yes, there's intended to be pleasure in it, but it's pleasure that comes from the serving the interest of another. This, is, this perspective, if we grasp it, can have a radical impact on our lives. I didn't really understand this until I was studying, reading some things in preparation to get married when I was going through premarital counseling, that, that I realized this, that sex is not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about loving my spouse, loving this person that I've committed to. That is not the message the rest of the world gives us. It gives us, if you want to feel good, you want your desire, you want this. It's about making you feel good, but no, it's, it's about caring for someone else's desires and loving them. And if we understand that, if that grasp in our minds, then that can kill sexual immorality. Because if we experience sexual pleasure without a spouse, that's to be like Esau, choosing ourself over holiness. The passage we're going to get to when we spend a bit more time of this is in chapter 13. Our author says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge, so we hold this in honor, this good thing God has created. So we should have God's perspective, and we should also heed the warning of that verse and of our passage. God gives us a warning about letting this type of unholiness control our lives. And I guess this isn't bad news, but it's kind of bad news. You're here. You listened to it. So God will hold you accountable for hearing his truth. And so while you still can, don't follow Esau's example, but turn away from sin. Whether it's that or any other, I I, I don't want to walk out here thinking, oh, Pastor John's beating up on a particular sin. That's not desire. I'm trying to speak to each of our hearts. The areas that we have that keep us from God. Friend, if there's something you're living in that's more passionate to you than God, then turn away from that. Push that aside. And instead, turn your trust to God. Rely on Jesus Christ. Don't live thinking, I can do whatever I want, but say, Jesus, I need you. He has provided a way out of whatever issue it is that you struggle with. That way out he's provided is that he came and lived a perfect life without sin. He died to pay for your sin. He rose to give you new life and restore you to God. 
So no matter what sin is in your past, you can find grace, freedom, restoration in Jesus Christ. That's available for you, but it's only found in Him. So we heed the warning, and then the kind of third application we could take is we know Jesus, then we continue in our relationship with Him. And that's just following what we've seen in this passage. It's to keep running, keep going in this race of life. It's to keep striving after peace and holiness. It's to not run alone, but rely on His people, turn away from bitter sin, but most importantly, trust in Christ because He alone is worthy.